Daniel chapter 8, so we're going to spend our time together this morning. I have a friend uh, who has never seen a movie without first reading through a full rundown of that movie. I don't just mean a synopsis or a summary. I mean he reads the full accounting of the movie, spoilers and all, before he sits down in the theater to see it. He's a monster. I don't know why we're friends. We shouldn't be. No one should be friends with this man. And, I mean, who does that? It's really a horrible practice. Uh, He knows every twist before it happens. He knows what happens to the good guys. He knows what happens to the bad guys. Uh, And so when we've seen some suspenseful movies together, uh, I'll be wound up really tight. Like, here are these tense moments in the movie that are really affecting me. And he's just sitting next to me, chowing on his popcorn, giggling a little bit, totally cool as a cucumber. And why? Well, because knowing the end of a story makes a difference in how you respond as the events unfold. What events did you see unfold this week in the news around you? The whole world's in chaos. That's not new this week. Uh, Not unique this week. It's just the way things are. Politics out of control. Diseases out of control. Violence out of control. I feel like one night we're going to turn on the nightly news and it'll just be anchors taking turns screaming at the camera together. I, I think that's where we're headed eventually. But God's people should face these days without panic, without terror, with great confidence, in fact. And why is that? Well, it's because God hasn't left us in the dark as to the trajectory of history. We know how the story ends. We also know something about how the story goes from here to there, and knowing the end of the story makes a difference in the way we respond as the events unfold. Daniel chapter 8 contains a vision that's meant to steady God's people with sobering descriptions of hardships that are to come and some stunning description of God's ultimate victory over evil and the evil one. And so when we read Daniel chapter 8, it should work in us a few different emotions. It's, it's a very emotional passage, to be sure. There are things in this chapter that we might describe as scary, but inside of this scary vision of things to come is a God who is faithful and who is strong, a God who is in control, a God whose power is reflected in the calm faith of His children. So in a world full of chaos, it's vital that you and I understand that God has control over all things. And it's this knowledge that enables us to live our lives with purpose and joy. So that's going to be our focus this morning in Daniel chapter 8. I want to show you ways in which God's control over all things impacts our lives and the world around us. So in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to see this one ruler in particular who inflicts massive violence. He has violence that reaches the heavens. But even with something as unimaginable as that, we're steadied by God's unwavering control over the events in the world around us. I want you to follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam. 
I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Ulai. Gabriel explained the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and made me stand up and said, I'm here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king skilled in intrigue will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrage, destruction, and succeed, or excuse me, outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the people along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. 
Daniel was disturbed by the vision. We probably should be also. It's a scary picture of things to come. But like other visions in the book of Daniel, this is vision number two of four in the second half of the book, we are given a vision and we are given an interpretation. It's really helpful if you spend time in this section of Daniel on your own to know that we're not left with tons and tons of questions, but God gives us interpretation of these things right here in the passage as well. And, you know, the Bible never shies away from the difficulties of life. It never lies to us about how hard things can be or are going to be. This vision gives us hard news. The hard news is that God's people will face evil days. But this vision also gives us great news. And the great news is that evil's days are numbered and the evil one has a date with God's justice. So I want to show you in chapter 8 three ways that God's control over the chaos of this world impacts our lives. What difference does God's control make? Well, first of all, if you're taking notes, God controls the rise and fall of nations. When we look at the first part of Daniel's vision, especially the part with the ram and the goat, it teaches us that God controls the rise and fall of nations. Chapter 8 opens with a time stamp. Daniel tells us that this was the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Uh, And so that means this is two years after chapter 7. Chapter 7 opens and says in the first year of King Belshazzar, chapter 8 is in the third year. In case you hadn't noticed yet, the book of Daniel is not in chronological order. Uh, Chapters 7 and 8 happen before chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the story where King Belshazzar is throwing this wicked feast and a, um, a hand appears and writes a message on the wall and he wets himself and then calls Daniel to come interpret the message on the wall. Remember that whole scene? I find it so fascinating that as Daniel stood before King Belshazzar on that night in chapter 5, he was carrying with him the visions of chapter 7 and 8 for years. He'd already seen these things and knew these things. He knew the trajectory of history, and what he saw unfolding that night was God's faithfulness to his word. So chapter 8 also opens with the location change. Uh, Daniel, if he's serving the king in Babylon, that's where he's located. He he sleeps and works in Babylon. But chapter 8 takes Daniel to a different location. I'm not so sure that Daniel goes physically to the city of Susa in the Ulai Canal. Uh, I think his vision finds him there. Susa was a major city about 200 miles away from Babylon, 200 miles to the east Uh, And why does his vision take place there? We're not given a firm answer, but it could be to signify that there's a new world power on the horizon. Babylon's days are numbered. We've known that since chapter 2. But now here, Babylon's days are numbered and a new power is going to rise uh, and take control. Now, Daniel's vision focuses on three main characters. Those characters are represented by a ram, a goat, in a little horn. Those are the images given to us in this story. And I want us to talk first about the ram and the goat. Uh, who are they? What do they do? What does the angel Gabriel tell us about these two characters? Uh, first of all, we're introduced to the ram in verse 3. And we're told some things about the ram. He's got two long horns. One of them is longer, and that longer horn came up after the first one. And this ram is seemingly invincible. 
Now, we're told in verse 4 that he charges west and north and south, and no animal could stand against him. There's no rescue from his power. He does whatever he wants and becomes great. And who was the ram? Well, we're not left in the dark on this. The angel Gabriel interprets this for Daniel and for us in verse 20. The ram of verse 3 is the kingdoms of Medea and Persia. Remember how he described these two horns that came up, and one came up later and was longer? Uh, Medea is the first and the shorter horn. Persia is the second and the longer horn. These two kingdoms combined um, covered a huge swath of territory in the ancient world, a kingdom that far exceeded Babylon's boundaries and a kingdom that swallowed up Babylon. Uh, It was a massive, massive world power, one that was unrivaled at the time in its wealth and in its strength and in its armies and in its violence. The ram does whatever he wants until the goat comes to town. We're introduced to the goat in verse 5. We're told the goat came from the west. Uh, We're told he didn't touch the ground, which is a, a picture of how fast the goat moves. He has a conspicuous horn or a very visible horn in the middle of his head. And in verse 6, the goat rushes the ram with savage fury. In verse 7, he strikes the ram. He breaks the two horns. The ram can't stand against him, and the goat tramples the ram, and no one can rescue the ram. The goat does whatever he wants. Verse 8 then tells us that the, the goat kingdom becomes great, and at the height of its power, its large horn is broken and four lesser horns replace it. It's a lot going on there. Who is the goat? I feel obligated to make a Tom Brady joke here. I'm not going to do it. I'm above that. I'm not going to say that Daniel 8 predicts that Tom Brady is going to play in Dallas next year. I'm not going to do it. We're going to keep our noses in the text. Who's the goat? Of verse 5, the angel Gabriel tells us in verse 21 that the goat is the kingdom of Greece, comes from the west, takes out the ram, the kingdoms of Medea and Persia. We're not only told that it's the kingdom of Greece, but the angel goes on to interpret for us the large horn, that conspicuous, that very visible horn in the middle of its head. Who is that? That's the first king of Greece, according to verse 21. The angel doesn't give us a name. But if we look back from our vantage point in history, we would say, well, that person is Alexander the Great in all likelihood. The angel also talks about four horns. The large horn is broken, right? Alexander the Great had a funeral. He died. And after him, uh, four other kingdoms arose from Greece. That's what the angel Gabriel tells us. The goat's four horns in verse 8 are four nations that follow uh, the kingdom of Greece, verse 22. All right. What does this teach us? The saga of the ram and the goat, what does it teach us about God's control over all things? Well, God gave this vision, this picture to Daniel hundreds of years before these things unfolded. God is in complete and total control of the rise and fall of nations. The Persian kingdom at the height of its power seemed invincible. Verse 4 that describes the ram just doing whatever he wants. Verse 4 covers 200 years of human history. Just in one tiny verse. And then the Greek goat comes along and crushes the whole thing. 
What does that teach us except that nations and their rulers are finite? The stability of a nation can change in an instant with the death of a leader or the crash of a stock market or the launch of a missile. And so for Christians who are living under monstrous regimes, verse, or excuse me, chapter 8 should serve as hope and comfort for them to know that every dictator, every demagogue, every man who sets himself up as a godlike ruler in every kingdom has a date with the judgment of God. Every single one. There's comfort for the persecuted and the afflicted and the beat down and the trodden in Daniel chapter 8. It also calls us to humility as we think about the power and the wealth of nations. The power and the wealth of nations is finite. It is man-made. And how majestic is it compared to the eternal majesty of God? How powerful is any nation compared to the sovereign power, the omnipotence of God? Nations compared to other nations can be impressive, but no nation stacks up to God. How does anything compare to God? Not a ram, not a goat, not an eagle. It calls us to humility when we think about the place of nations and rulers in God's plan to accomplish His good and perfect will. Nations are like puppets in a play that someone else has written. They're not writing the play, not dictating the direction of God's kingdom, but God Himself is the one who is in complete and total control. He knew 200 years before the conspicuous horn, Alexander the Great, would take his throne. He knows 100, 200 years from now who the rulers are and where they will be and what nations will look like. He's got a plan that far exceeds our lifespans and that accomplishes his perfect will the whole way through. So Christians can take comfort in these things. God is in complete control. That takes the teeth out of the terrors. These images of nations in chaos are given to us so that when they appear, they lose the element of surprise. What happened to Persia and to Greece has happened over and over again throughout history. And it's going to happen again and again. It's a cycle that will continue until Christ returns. So take comfort. and Don't be afraid. God's in full control of the rise and the fall of countries. Doesn't this give you a platform also from which to share your faith in Christ? When everyone around you looks at the state of affairs with horror and sees chaos and all these foundations are fractured and crumbling, the gospel of Jesus Christ has a loud voice as it speaks hope and confidence. It exposes the finiteness and the failures of mankind and it shows the glory and the power of God to save to rescue, and to accomplish His will. So Christian, take comfort in knowing that God has control over the chaos of the countries. Daniel 8 gives us a second picture of God's control over all things. God controls the number of evil's days. God's control numbers evil's days. That means God has set a limit on how long evil lasts and how wide it can expand. So we've talked about the ram and the goat. The next character we meet in Daniel's vision is the main character aside from God. In verse 9, we meet the little horn. 
Uh, We're told that the little horn uh, emerges out of one of the goat's four horns. It started small, but it grew massive in its power. Uh, It spread to the south, the east, and we're told it went to the beautiful land, which I take to be a description of Israel. In verse 10, we're told that the little horn's power reached the heavens. So it spreads everywhere across earth, and then it begins to spread upward until it reached heaven. And we're told he threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. In verse 11, his arrogance is unchecked. He sets himself up as a god and does away with the worship of God. And then in verse 12, he throws truth to the ground and prospers in everything. His terror doesn't stop there. Daniel has a question for the angel Gabriel as he's interpreting these things. Daniel wants to know more about the little horn. And so verses 23 through 25 give us more details about what his reign of terror is like and what it means for God's people. So who is the little horn? Well, the angel Gabriel does not give Daniel a specific name or a specific nation of any sort. But that doesn't mean people haven't guessed. Let me give you two options as to who the little horn might be. You can flip a coin and pick the one that best fits your view of the end of times, okay? Uh, Option number one is the little horn can be a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. If you were to look at the majority of scholars who write on this issue or on Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, they're going to tell you, the vast majority will say he's a historical figure, the little horn's a historical figure named Antiochus Epiphanes. They'll say he's a figure in our past, but he was a figure in Daniel's future. From Daniel's vantage point, God was speaking to him about uh, nations to come, rulers to come, Medea, Persia, Greece. And then the little horn is this monster of a ruler. And our vantage point tells us it was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, He was a ruler over the Seleucid Empire. Uh, He died in 164 B.C. His name literally means God manifest. Uh, In 168 B.C., he was angered by a rebellion in Jerusalem. He took his army, and the book of 2 Maccabees describes the massacre this way. Raging like a wild animal, Antiochus set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery." He outlawed Judaism. He ordered the worship of Zeus as the supreme god. He built a pagan altar in the Jewish temple, and he sacrificed pigs on it. He was a monster of a human being. There's a second option, though, as to who the little horn might be. The little horn might be the Antichrist. So rather than looking back at one specific person in history, uh, God's people might stand in Daniel chapter 8 and look to the end of things and say, uh, no, this is the Antichrist, God's great nemesis, and the great nemesis of God's Messiah as well. Now, here's my unscholarly opinion. Feel free to toss it if you want and hang on to your own opinion. The angel does not identify the little horn, and I think there's a reason for that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it either. I know that Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of Antichrist. And following him have come other beastly men who've been Antichrists to God's people. 
And I believe what the Bible says, that one day the Antichrist will rise and deceive and destroy. And then according to Revelation chapter 19, meet its end at the hands of Jesus Christ himself. I believe that. So who's the little horn? I don't think it matters because I don't think that's the point of this vision is to identify this person. I think the point of this vision is to give strength and courage to God's people to ready us for the day whenever horrors arise, when things turn dark and when blood sheds. It's to ready us for that day when things seem to go their worst. More important than identifying the little horn is recognizing that God's in control and he's the God that gives hope to his people even through the hardest of days. Now, we've got find great hope in God's control over these things in verse 14. Verse 14 gives us a date, so to speak. Verse 14, one angel is speaking to another. Daniel hears their conversation. And the one angel asks the other, how long will this last? Looking at all the terror, all the horror that's happening, how long will this last? And the angel replies, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. You know, it's almost as if the angels of heaven are sympathetic to the anguish and the suffering of God's people on earth. And so what are we to make of 2,300 days? Uh, You want a couple of options? I know you did, so I'll give you a couple of options. Some people, the the language is not abundantly clear. So some people would say, well, to say 2,300 evenings and mornings means that uh, evening number one is number one. Morning number one is number two. Evening number two is three, and then four, we go on and on like that. So rather than 2,300, it actually splits it in half. We've got 1,150 days or three years and two months. Another option counts morning and evening as one unit, so 2,300 days is 24-hour cycles, 2,300 times. That's six years and four months. Which one is it? Again, the angel doesn't explain. Now, you will not have a hard time finding some... TV preacher, writer type person has a book to sell you that will explain in light of today's headlines what that 2300 days means. You can buy their book and fuel their private jets and their TV airtime and then have comfort until the headlines change and they identify something different. But I don't think the point, again, is to give us an exact calendar date of anything. I don't think Daniel's given 2300 days so that the people who are living through Antiochus Epiphanes or whatever terror to come would say, here's this specific date when all of this ends. I don't think that's the goal at all. I think the goal is to steady God's people, to know the days of evil are numbered. They are coming to an end. It does not stay this way forever. Those who prey on God's people, those who rebel against God, there's an end to that evil once and for all. It's going to be 2,300-somethings, But do you know what happens on day 2301? Look at verse 25, the very end of verse 25. The little horn will be destroyed, but not by human hands. It's it's just one little line tucked at the end of all of this terror and all of this horror, but it is the anchor that holds God's people in the face of the worst of human suffering. The little horn will be destroyed, but not by human hands. Does that phrase sound familiar at all? I hope it does. It takes us back to chapter 2. 
And in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a statue made up of four different types of metals. And those different sections of the statue represented successive kingdoms, Babylon and others to come. And in that vision, a rock is cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. And that rock flies in and destroys that statue into a bajillion pieces. And then that little rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And what is that rock mountain that fills the whole earth? It's the kingdom of God, a dominion that never fades away. It's his kingdom that is forever and ever established by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. So here's hope for God's people in the midst of these horrible, horrible things. God crushes Every Antichrist and the Antichrist, God's judgment will not miss its mark. One thing I love about John's description of eternity in Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 21, are the descriptions of things that are not there. He always, we'll always talk about streets of gold and pearly gates and all this just incredible stuff. But do we ever talk about what's not present? Well, John did. He took time to tell us in Revelation 21 the things that are not present in the eternal glory of God. He says there are no more tears and there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain There is no more old order of things. There is no darkness. There are no closed gates. There is no night. There is nothing impure. And let us add to that list. There is no more racism. And there is no more abuse. And there is no more mental health struggles. And there is no more loneliness. And there is no more addiction. And there are no more broken relationships. There is no more hellish living when we live in the presence of God forever and ever, because he destroys those things once and for all. His control puts a number on evil's days. And that means there is eternal glory for all of his children who walk with him. You probably came in here today carrying all kinds of garbage. And you've done a good job to act like nothing has bothered you this past week so that no one will think you're human like the rest of us. And you've done well to say you're doing fine whenever someone asks how you're doing. But we know you're limping. We know you're struggling. We know you're going through really hard, difficult times. Can you find hope in the God of your salvation who has numbered the days of evil? And that means if victory is his in the eternal future, victory is his today, you don't walk in defeat You don't walk wounded. You walk in the power and the glory of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. There's hope and strength for you this day right here in Daniel chapter 8 because God has numbered evil's days. One last picture of God's control in this story is God's control enables his people to live well. God's control over all these things is for our immediate benefit in the here and now. It helps us to live well. I love verse 27. It's my favorite verse in this entire chapter. Look at it with me. He says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. I'm not wild that Daniel was sick for days. But he says this, Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. 
So the prophecy, this vision, it it took a physical toll on Daniel, and he needed a few days to recover from it. It also took an emotional toll on him. He was disturbed by it longer than he was laid up in bed. But here's what strikes me. What does Daniel do after receiving this vision and finally regaining his strength to get out of bed? What does he do? He says, I got up and went about the king's business. He went back to work. He didn't go start a compound and start living out of five-gallon buckets filled with rice and dried corn. And if you have that, that's fine. But I'm just saying, that's, Daniel went to work on Monday. He had this vision, and he knows where things are going to go and how horrific it will be for God's people and how incredible God's ultimate victory will be. And he cleaned himself up, and he went to work the next day. He didn't start trying to figure out what date will this happen. He didn't start a a chart trying to identify who the little horn is. He went about the king's business. He went back to work. One of the surest signs that you and I are people who, one, believe the vision of Daniel 8, and two, trust the God who's in control of all these things, is that we go on about our normal, everyday business. One of the surest ways you can show your faith in God is to wake up tomorrow morning and go to work, or take the kids to school, or fold a basket of laundry, or sit through a boring meeting, or change the oil in your car, or later in the week, worship with your faith family, or share the gospel with someone in your vicinity. Going about our normal daily routines is a sure sign that we trust God's in control. Headlines rage, chaos erupts, God's in control, I'm going to work. Uh, 2005, my family and I were living in Jackson, Mississippi when Hurricane Katrina hit. When it got to our house, it was down to a Category 1, Category 2. My in-laws lived in New Orleans, and they had evacuated to to be with us for a couple of days. It was a a common routine. We had done it several times before. Uh, But this time, instead of staying just for a couple of days, which is all the clothes they brought with them, uh, they ended up living with us for a month. Now, um, just by... God's grace, their house was on the right side of a canal that broke. The canal broke on the opposite side from their house. And so their house didn't suffer the catastrophic flooding like other homes did. And so after a month, they opened up the city, and my in-laws were able to get back to their home. And my father-in-law was a professor at a Baptist seminary at the time. That seminary was built on a, a small slanted hill, And the back of the seminary was at the lowest portion of elevation. And so the flooding hammered the back of the seminary. And then it just, it it got a little less and a little less as it went up. Again, it just so happens my father-in-law's office was at the front of the campus and didn't flood. Now, uh, entire apartment buildings were flooded in the back of the campus. Students lost everything. Professors lost everything. Buildings were just completely destroyed by all the water. And so you know what my father-in-law did? The first day he could, he got up and he drove to work. And he was there at 8 in the morning. And he answered phones 
and he helped muck out apartments, and he went to meetings, and he made administrative decisions, and he stayed till 5 o'clock and later every day. And he said, I just knew that the one thing God could have me do is be a little bit of normal in the midst of all of this chaos. Isn't that what God's people do? Isn't that what Daniel did here? Things are insane. Things are nuts. And I trust God so much and believe he's in control to the degree that I can get up and go to work as a statement of faith. I can be a good friend as a statement of faith. Let's get brunch. Let's drink coffee. Let's enjoy the day. Let's share the gospel as a statement of my trust and my faith in God that he is in complete and total control. I'm meant for a place other than this. My future is not tied up in anything nations or rulers do. My future is held securely in the hands of a God who sent his son to die in my place to save me. God's control over all things gives us peace and purpose that we might live our lives with abundant joy in the here and now. So what have we learned about God's control from Daniel chapter 8? Well, God's control dictates the ebb and flow of nations. God's control puts an end to the date of evil. And God's control enables you and I to live our lives well. In Daniel 8, we've met this powerful and horrific enemy. And so a good question to ask is, how do we know God can defeat such a powerful enemy? If he knew he was coming, why didn't he do something to stop it in the first place? How do we know God actually has the power to stop this? Well, the cross of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that God's plan will always prevail in the face of our weakness and our rebellion and our sin and in spite of the terror of Satan and all of his hosts. Because of the victory won at the cross, the gates of hell can never prevail against Christ's flock. Now, to be sure, evil remains among us. It is awful and powerful in this world. And sin still has devastating effects on the world around us and on our lives. Our path to heaven often takes us through very dark valleys. But we must never lose sight of the glories of heaven and the fact that God's timetable is the one that directs the events of history. The cross is the place where God gives his final answer to our rebellion and to the evil of this world. And if ever there was a time of wrath, it's those six hours that Jesus hung on the cross on Golgotha's hill. It's there that he absorbs and eats and takes in full the wrath of God for our sin. And when that time of wrath is over, it's now time for blessing and righteousness in eternal life. If ever there was a time when death was defeated, it was when Jesus walked out of that tomb. How do we know God wins the day because Christ died and he lives evermore? Now tomorrow's headlines, they're going to be just as chaotic as ever. You and I cannot invent the nuttiness ahead of us. We're not even to November yet, and already all ye voters are living in a land full of chaos. But God's people are going to roll out of bed tomorrow with confidence in their powerful, compassionate, victorious God, and we're going to live our days with unbreakable joy. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, Daniel chapter 8 is hard for us to take in. Uh, The images are scary to me. I don't want to treat lightly the fact that what they depict are uh, the sufferings of people, people hurting, uh, 
at the hands of wicked ones. But God, I pray that even though the little horn and all those like him get a lot of the ink, I pray that we would hold to that one little line, that he's going to meet his end, but not by human hands. You are active. You are at work. You know you are strong. You're powerful. You are loving. And, Father, let us find our strength and hope for every day in this truth. God, I pray that you would draw to you the one who feels just run over by this world and is without Jesus Christ as their Savior. Would you call that friend to you today? Open their eyes to faith in Christ and the difference that a crucified and resurrected Savior makes. Let them trust in him, not in any worldly power, not in any sort of truth they've mined in themselves, but, Father, let them trust in the one who's been revealed, Jesus Christ, your Son. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith this morning that you would strengthen our legs and steady our hearts that regardless of what the world has for us, for your people, for you, that we would live our days in quiet confidence, bold faith, defiant faith as we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.